0: Welcome to Head, Heart, and Hands, the teaching fellowship of Bob Carter, pastor of River City Reformed Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. The Bible teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul and strength. We want to help you do just that. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to our heads. God wants us to think, and to think correctly. Second. The gospel is also a call to our hearts. We are to love God and to love what God loves. And the gospel is a call to our hands, to action, real change and transformation. Now let's join our teacher, Bob Carter, for today's challenging message.
1: The sermon this morning is entitled, The Glory of the Conqueror and the Agony of the Conquered. We're going to be looking at the final moments of King Saul's life. It's 1 Samuel 31, the very last chapter in 1 Samuel. And we'll be comparing that, both King David and to the Lord Christ. The glory of the conqueror and the agony of the conquered. We've been looking at first Samuel now. We've preached the entire today it will be the end of it, the first Samuel. As we've looked at First Samuel, one of the dominant themes we've seen is the contrast between the visible and the invisible church. I've mentioned to you many times Matthew Mead in the book The Almost Christian Discovered makes that comparison a great deal and particularly uses King Saul among others in the Bible to point out what Christianity the visible church can look like without a real heart after God. And so we've seen that all through this, King David and King Saul have been compared in this. But in this chapter in particular, we have just seen, and it's interesting, the work of the Holy Spirit, sometimes parenthetically, he will put a passage in that almost seems like it, why Why is that there? We think of that with Judah and Tamar during the life of Joseph. The same thing is true here. Here, we've been re- looking at, King Saul, and in 29, he goes and visits the witch of Endor and is told that he's going to die. But then the camera backs up, and in chapter 30, it moves over to what's going on in King David's life. And in chapter 30, King David experiences, by the hand of God, a glorious victory in which he goes out and recovers all that was lost, and not a single person is lost, not a single item is lost, All the material possessions, all the people come back. It's a full and glorious victory. And then there's a period at the end of that chapter. And then the camera moves back over from chapter 29 now and picks up with chapter 31 about what's going on in Saul's life. Once again, comparing these two men. And it is the most ignominious death outside of Judas, the most ignominious death in the Bible. It is a horrible, horrible death. Slow, painful, humiliating, with grave consequences in every direction. Will you stand to honor the reading of God's word? In 1 Samuel 31 we read, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through, and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men on that day together. When the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about on the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head. And stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of beth Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh, and burned them there. They took their bones, and burned them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh. And fasted for seven
2: days. You pray with me, please. God, we see this tragic and dreadful end of a man who had
1: once walked very humbly and then had been exalted very high and could not bear the weight of glory and crushed underneath it. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding of this passage, understanding of ourselves and a great understanding of the Lord Christ
2: as second Adam, and as God of God, light of light, very God
1: of very God, worthy of our worship and praise, our adoration, our obedience,
2: our love. We ask God that you would help us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated.
1: We see in this chapter, it's a very short chapter, and I want to encourage you to read it again this afternoon, perhaps a couple of times this week. It is pretty remarkable, all the things that happen in this chapter. It's short and brief, but it mentions, even briefly, a variety of chaos and of difficulty, of defeat. And the shock waves that go out from that in every direction in this. I was part of a Bible study recently, uh, just a week ago, They met here in town of a men's study that's been going on for quite a few years, as far as I know. At the end of the study, they went around and asked for prayer request. One of the men, who is about 80, prayed, asked that people would pray for him that he would finish well people prayed for all asked for all kinds of things and they were all very god honoring noble things they were asking for this man asked that he might finish well and of course everybody recognized how incredibly good and right that was all of these men were either close to retirement or retired they all realized how remarkable that was as a request and quite frankly we all recognized how rare it is that you see that happening but here we see in chapter 31 what Charles Spurgeon says, that most men die like they live. Most men die like they live. Charles Spurgeon points out that there is only one deathbed conversion in all of Scripture. It's the thief on the cross. And Charles Spurgeon says there is one that none should despair. As long as you're still alive, there is the opportunity, there is the hope. But there's only one, Charles Spurgeon says, that none should presume.
2: And as we see
1: King Saul go out so badly, again today we have a lower, we have a different view of suicide today. In the Hebrew mind, that was very much murder. They understood it to be murder. There were three kinds of murder, murder of someone else, murder of the king, and murder of yourself. There were three different categories of murder. Murdering someone else was very bad, murdering the king was probably the worst, but murdering yourself was probably equal to or better or worse than, if you will, a murder of someone else. And so they saw the self-inflicted wound here as a, a very... very serious thing in a way that we don't always see it quite that way today, in our culture at least. But as he is here, we see something that is interesting, an analogy. Remember that King Saul is the first king. They ask for a king under Samuel, after Samuel is old, and God grants them a king, even though he acknowledges to them that he has been their king. But he gives them a king, and he gives them King Saul, whose only characteristic is
2: that he's tall. His only
1: characteristic is that he's tall. And God gives them a king that they might have chosen for themselves, one with an outward appearance. And then he juxtaposes that with King David, who is ruddy, and no one thinks he would be a king. And then when Samuel comes to the house of Jesse, the eight sons are there, but seven are in the house ready to feast, and the youngest is out with the sheep, and nobody thinks anything about him. But God says he's a man after my own heart. But not only is King Saul the first, but his dynasty is completely obliterated here, we see in this, in this passage. And if you remember, the very next book is 2 Samuel, which is the life of, really the entire life of uh, King David as king. And then it ends with the transition to Solomon. And 1 Kings picks up with Solomon. And First Kings goes all the way from Solomon in that downward spiral all the way down through Second Kings to Josiah, the last good king. And then three of Josiah's
2: sons rule. Zedekiah is the last
1: king. Zedekiah is, is defeated by Nebuchadnezzar and his sons are killed in front of him. And then he's blinded and taken off to Babylon. So the last thing he would ever see would be the destruction of his own dynasty. That's how the book of Kings ends. It shows us, brothers and sisters, it shows us from beginning to end what Watchman Nee says, and we don't believe it, that only God can bear the weight of glory. Only God can bear the weight of glory. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And men crush under the weight of it. The book is called Samuel because it begins by Samuel. It's very likely that parts of it may have been begun by Samuel himself, but obviously finished by someone else. What does Samuel mean? We mentioned that early on as we started studying the book. It's a command. Shmu in Hebrew is an imperative. It means listen, and then God. It means hear God. Listen to God is what Samuel's name means. Hear God. Listen to God. And we see this incredible warning set forth in the very life, in detail, the life of King Saul. And then the ignominious and tragic defeat and death of King Saul. It says that the war goes very difficult for them. And it says that Israel fled and fell. And then verse 2, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan. Jonathan means the gift of the Lord. Abinadab is my father is daring. My father is a warrior. My father is bold. And Shua is my king is salvation. My king is salvation. If it's a reference to Saul, it would make no sense at all. If it's a reference to the Lord, it makes great sense. But these are the three sons, and, they die in battle. Verse 3, the battle went heavily against Saul and the archers hit him or something. The Hebrew says found him. The archers found him. Their, their heir goes up and just comes down and, and finds King Saul. The archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. And we see the providence of God here in the midst of this battle that King Saul is destined by God and found by God. And then we see the, we begin to see the, the ripples going out. We already see the first one, that it's his sons die in battle with him and his line is obliterated. So he himself loses his crown. He himself loses his life. He loses his dignity first before he loses his life. But he loses his dignity, he loses his life, he loses his crown, he loses his sons. And very likely he saw them die and knew they were dead when he took his own life or tried to take his own life. Charles Spurgeon says that sin is like a honeycomb. And what he means by that is the individual cells that you think of when you think of a honeycomb. Meaning that sin doesn't come by itself. It always comes in multiples. And it affects multiples. And here we see it with the life of King Saul. I said to you that only God can bear the weight of glory. The word glory in Hebrew is one of those words that has two meanings. It has the word glory. But it's also the word in Hebrew for heavy. Not a different word; it's the very same word. How ancient it is that we see the truth of Watchman Nee—that the word Kavod, which is the word for glory, is the same word for heavy. God's glory is heavy, and He can bear it. And the glory of worship or of leadership is often very heavy. Matthew Henry says this: "As he lived, so he died.
2: Proud." and jealous, and a terror
1: to himself, and all about him. Listen to that again. As he lived, so he died, proud and jealous, and a terror to himself, and all about him. And then he goes on and says, Some despairing of the mercy of God, like Judas, leap into a hell before them to escape a hell within them. Saul not only loses his life and crown and his glory and his sons, but his dynasty is lost and part of the kingdom is lost. You see, uh, it immediately says in here that when the victory is to the Philistines, the people of Israel who are in the surrounding cities hear about it and they immediately simply vacate the cities. They recognize the Philistines are going to be coming to them. They're very nearby and they just get up and run. And part of the kingdom is lost to the Philistines as well. The advancement. Again, remember that in the Old Testament, Philistine is code word for spiritual warfare. We see spiritual warfare in the Old Testament represented by the Philistines. The advancement, the constant harassing of the people of God by the Philistines. And here they have a great victory. But we also see the reality of what kings are like and but our hope should be in God we certainly can have we have to have government and we want to support the leaders of our government whether they be kings or presidents or otherwise but not put our hope and trust in them our hope is in the Lord you remember Hosea is one of those minor prophets that we don't know that much about because we don't read him very often primarily but Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah and if you remember Isaiah is preaching in the south while the northern kingdom is getting ready to be attacked and destroyed by Sennacherib and by the Assyrians. Hosea is actually in the north. Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah, preaching in the north, saying to them, repent, repent, wake up, repent. Well, here's what he says in chapter 13 toward the end of his prophecy. Oh, Israel, you are destroyed. He now recognizes it's too late, that God is coming, and he's going to destroy the northern kingdom. O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is
2: from me. I will be your king.
1: Where is any other? That he may save you in all your cities. And your judges, to whom you said, give me a king and princes. He's talking about Samuel there. You guys said to to Samuel, give us a king and princes. I gave you a king, says the Lord, in my anger, and took him away in my wrath. And so we see God describing the situation with not only Saul, but subsequent kings as well. That we should at all times be mindful of the reality of God as our king, and to be looking to him as our king, as our hope, as our strength, as our deliverer. 1 Chronicles picks up on this and indicates that not only in his death and the dismembering of his body, his head is severed, if you remember, it. it says here in our passage that they took it and took it into the temple. Verse 10, they put his weapons in the temple of the Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth-Shaan. It's a very ignominious death. It says in First Chronicles 10, 13 and 14, it says that they took him and put his head in the temple of Dagon. It also says this, So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord. Saul died, this is what the First Chronicle writer says, Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. It ascribes his going to the witch of Endor as part of the reason that God brought the death upon him. But he did not inquire of the Lord, he didn't ask the priest, he didn't call for a priest, and Saul, that is, going into battle. He didn't ask for a priest, he asked, went and found the witch of Endor. Most men die like they live. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him, that is, God killed Saul, and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And so we begin with the uh, book of Second Samuel with this dire warning at the end of First Samuel. What a remarkable warning for King David and then for all the kings after them. But back in our text in chapter 31, we do see something of a little bit of a brightness here, and that is ch- uh, verse 11. Now, when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night, Where is Jabesh Gilead? What is Jabesh Gilead? Well, first of all, geographically, it's right nearby Beth Shaan. It is within walking distance. It's probably less than 10 miles for sure from there. But what are the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead? It's chapter 11 in 1 Samuel. We we won't go back and look at it this morning or read it this morning, but you can read it this afternoon. Saul's first great victory is Jabesh Gilead. The... uh, Ammonites, not the Philistines, the Ammonites to the east, the are to the west, the Ammonites from the east come and threaten them and say, we're going to make you our slaves and the only way we're going to let you live is if you agree to be our slaves and we're going to blind, we're going to take out one of your eyes for each of the men in the city. And they appeal to Saul to come and help them. And he's their, Saul's first victory is Jabesh Gilead. And the men, listen, the men of Jabesh Gilead
2: remember that. They remember that.
1: We're going to see in the Song of the Bow in 1 Samuel that when David hears about it, he writes this beautiful song, he sings this song and writes this beautiful song and he has it written down and he has it distributed throughout the land. He calls it the Song of the Bow in which he extols that there were many good things that came from King Saul. That many people in Israel were blessed by King Saul, in various ways. And the people of Jabesh Gilead immediately recognize that, even before David acknowledges it. Probably because David hasn't heard yet, but nonetheless, they they immediately recognize it, and they remember Saul's great victory. We need to remember the great victories of our good God, and the nature and the character of our God. But as we see, Saul and David both blessed by God, we see here again and again that David is a man after God's own heart. God has given him a new heart. God has given King David holy affections. When we see the sins of King Saul, and I just read them to you, I just read to you, it said, this is from 1 Chronicles 10. By the way, uh, in Chronicles, Chronicles picks up with David, but it has one brief chapter only about the death of Saul. Not anything about the rest of it, but just briefly about the death of Saul. This is what it says about him again. It says, so Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. And we see that, and we say, okay, we understand that. And then we immediately think of John MacArthur's words, if you could lose your
2: salvation, you would. Our sins are of
1: such a nature but God continues to hold us by the hand. God continues to hold us by the hand and we see his steadfast love that endures forever. We see that he has mercy upon whom he has mercy and compassion upon whom he has compassion. And so we see the death of Saul could not have gone out in a worse way and remembered forever, recorded and remembered just that way. And then we think, of how he goes out conquered, but then we think of Christ and the difference. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, that passage that we're so familiar with, says, For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And we see that juxtaposed and contrasted with King Saul. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And we see with the death of King Saul, we see the children of Israel fleeing from cities. The Philistines haven't even attacked yet, but they know it's coming and they just get up and abandon their homes. But there'll be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to behold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God will bring a king, unlike Saul, unlike any of the other kings. He will bring a king, and he has in Christ Jesus. He is not only a king. How remarkable it is, he isn't only a king, but Christ willingly takes on the name of shepherd, of shepherd, as well, certainly, as king. And so in John chapter 10, that familiar passage, John 10 It says this in verse 11, John chapter 10 and verse 11. It says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Christ lays down his life for sheep. He doesn't take his life in humility and fear. He lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, he says, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment. I received from my Father. And so we see the beauty of Christ, that no greater love has a man than this, than that he laid down his life for his friends. David, of course, himself is a type of Christ. Christ is the greatest and the most glorious conqueror and champion. All that David does, and there are many great things, are still just foreshadowings of Christ to come. But in chapter 30, the previous chapter to chapter 31, David doesn't lose a one. And in John chapter 10, Christ says that he's not going to lose one, that no one's going to snatch them out of his hand as the good shepherd. And when he prays in John 17, he tells the Father, I've not lost any that you gave me. I've not lost any that you gave me. And then in Revelation, Revelation has this beautiful scene of the one going forth on the white horse. Revelation chapter 6, Then I saw the lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a loud voice of thunder, Come! I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. The Lord Christ has a bow. King David dies by, King Saul dies by the bow, or at least a mortal wound. We see Christ compared there again as he going out conquering and to conquer. He conquers his enemies, and he conquers sin. He conquers sin within us. And it is a great delight that he does that. He does it again and again in us. And the child of God rejoices that and wants King Jesus to come and conquer sin within us as we see how quickly we crumble in difficult circumstances. Paul speaks of this, of the triumph of Christ in Second Corinthians. He says, now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Christ always leads us in triumph. And so we look to him, delighting in what he has done and what he's doing in us by his spirit and by the indwelling. What is our response to this? Our response to this is we begin to see that no man can bear the weight of glory. And even King David, a man after God's own heart, has the dreadful situation of the adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and the murder of noble Uriah. Korah is mindful of how good a king God is. How good a king God is. Psalm 45 is a praise of God as our king. Of God as our king. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples, the enemies, fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir, the bride of Christ. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. He's addressing the church now. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty, because he is your lord. Bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. And what happens with King Saul? His lineage is wiped out and what we remember is his ignominious death. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. There was a time back in 1 Samuel 8 that the people rejected God as being their king. And they asked for a king. And God says to Samuel, you go ahead and anoint somebody and I'll point him out to you. And he tells Samuel not to take it personal. He says, because they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me.
2: The people of Israel did not want to walk by faith. They wanted to walk by sight behind a tall man into battle and in various situations rather than by faith with
1: God, the God of the universe. What application is there in Psalm 2? Kiss the Son, lest he be angry with you. Kiss the Son, run in the direction of the Son of God. And finally, in your bulletin itself, it says under the title of the sermon from Matthew 16, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it.
2: God mercifully gives us King Saul in considerable detail that we might see what that looks like.
1: In considerable detail, he says, do you want to try to pursue your own life? Do you want to try to pursue your own glory, your own agenda? This is how it will end. He could just
2: tell us that, and he would be right, and we should believe him. But God teaches clearly. He warns passionately. He corrects appropriately. And he restores lovingly. And so, when the Lord Christ speaks this, we remember King Saul. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Someone said, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep
1: in order to gain what he will never lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he can never lose. What will it profit a man, the Lord Christ continues, if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul?
2: King Saul was growing in glory and power. And, but look what end. Of what can a man give in exchange for his soul?
1: God comes again and again and again in his mercy and reminds us of the brevity of this life, of the magnitude of eternity, of the illusory nature of this life, and of the truth and glory of God and of his word. I pray that as we put a period at the end of 1 Samuel here, that we will reflect on these things. I do want to end with this last Challenge to you, and that's simply this Lord willing, we're going to go into 2 Samuel and look at King David now juxtaposed and contrasted with the reign of King Saul, and we'll see great power and goodness there and some weakness as well. But everybody understands if you've done any study about study that if you review after having studied some things, the ability to retain is much higher and longer. It would be very valuable to just simply go back this afternoon and this week and flip through the pages of 1 Samuel and just briefly remind yourself of the great humble beginnings of King Saul and the great humble beginnings of King David and the great nobility and truthfulness and faithfulness of Samuel Remember when they call King Saul and Samuel realizes that he's no longer going to be leading them and he has been serving in the capacity almost of a king in a sense. He willingly steps out of the way with his final charge to them. God forbid that I should sin against you and God by failing to pray for you. They rejected him. But he says, I have told you the truth. And I'm going to continue to pray for you. So I urge you to go back and read through 1 Samuel briefly, just just the highlights, and flip through the various 31 chapters to reflect upon God's faithfulness in showing us himself, his nature, and that indeed, only God
2: can bear the weight of glory. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we do praise
1: you and thank you for you are worthy of praise and thanksgiving and of all glory and honor and blessing. We rejoice in King Jesus that at the increase of his government there shall be no end and of the peace that will be with it. God, we praise you and thank you that
2: not only are you our King, But also our Savior, our Sustainer, our Shepherd, our Friend. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us,
1: that we should be called the children of God. And such we are in Christ Jesus. Holy Spirit, come and write these things in our heart, that you are worthy of our trust, of our
2: faith, of our hope, of our love.
1: God, we praise you that as we see the shortcomings and sin and utter folly and foolishness of King Saul, we
2: can see ourselves as well, except for you, holding us by the right hand, saying, no, I have better things for you. God, teach us as a result to walk humbly with you, our good God, doing by the power of your Holy Spirit that which is right and loving mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now the blessing of God for the people of God.
1: The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. And give you peace. Now and forever. Amen. Here's a Puritan prayer from the Valley of Vision Book of Prayers, read by Max McLean.
3: New Beginning Incomprehensible, great and glorious God, I adore Thee and abase Myself. I approach Thee mindful that I am less than nothing, a creature worse than nothing. My thoughts are not screened from Thy gaze. My secret sins blaze in the light of Thy countenance. Enable me to remember that blood which cleanseth all sin, to believe in that grace which subdues all iniquities, to resign myself to that agency which can deliver me from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Thou hast begun a good work in me, and canst alone continue and complete it. Give me an increasing conviction of my tendency to err, and of my exposure to sin." Help me to feel more of the purifying, softening influence of religion, its compassion, love, pity, courtesy, and employ me as thy instrument in blessing others. Give me to distinguish between the mere form of godliness and its power, between life and a name to live, between guile and truth, between hypocrisy and a religion that will bear thy eye. If I am not right, set me right, keep me right, and may I at last come to thy house in peace. You've
0: been listening to Head, Heart and Hands with Bob Carter. This Bible teaching has been sponsored by River City Reform Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Our website is rivercityreform.org. River City Reform Church meets on Sunday mornings at 10:30 at the Temple Baptist Activity Center, located on the corner of 17th Street Extension and George Anderson Drive. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information or call us at 910-520-0272. That's 910-520-0272. At River City Reform Church, we are all about loving God with our heads, hearts, and hands. We desire to know the one true God correctly. We long to love God, our Creator and Savior, passionately. We seek to worship and serve God willingly through the power of His Spirit. God wants us, and you, to ask good questions. He wants us to build our faith on credible evidence, not just a blind leap. Biblical Christianity is true. He also requires and strengthens us to conform our values and behavior to reflect His goodness and holiness. We're thinking, loving, serving. Come and see. John Piper has observed, worship is not the performance of a routine of hymns and prayers and preaching and anthems. When the angel said to John who had fallen at his feet, don't do that to me, worship God, he did not mean recite a creed or open your hymnal or listen to a sermon. He meant connect with God, focus on God, not the messenger, concentrate on God, not the hymn tune. Pursue God, not just knowledge about God. And in all your focusing and concentrating and pursuing after God, seek to stir up your feelings to love Him and honor Him and admire Him and fear Him and enjoy Him and savor Him. At River City, we agree, and we are not limited by a particular style. Rather, we are compelled by a timeless thanksgiving, repentance, joy, and reverence. Our Sunday morning worship is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please visit RiverCityReform.org for more information. On Sunday evenings, we meet for Bible study led by our pastor, Bob Carter. This study meets at 5 p.m. All are invited. Come and see...